Football, they say, is a game of two halves. Having not watched an awful lot of football, I'll take their word for that, but Daniel, on the, hand, on the other hand, is a book of two halves. Really, we've got the first half, which is well-known, well-preached, and well-loved. And then you've got the second half, uh, chapters 8 to 12, with his apocalyptic visions, uh, one of which we just had read, which is less known, less preached, and less understood. But even the first half, really, if you think about it, we often uh, are thinking back to perhaps if we went to Sunday school, uh, or a time like that, we're thinking of kids' Bibles when we think about the stories of Daniel and his friends. But this evening, buckle your seatbelts, because we're going to be looking at Daniel for grown-ups. And really we're going to see it's really practical for how we live, because first of all we're going to see the first seven chapters are really about how to survive Babylon. Uh, this will make more sense if you've been watching or uh, uh, coming along to the, the Revelation series. But the opening chapter in the book sets the scene really for the book, what the book is all about. Daniel and his companions are in exile in Babylon, just as Ezekiel was uh, last time. But unlike Ezekiel, these guys have been earmarked for greatness. They are there to be put in the king's court and be turned into good Babylonian citizens. And Daniel and his companions have a huge dilemma. How do they live in Babylon without becoming Babylonian? Sound familiar? Well, they need to decide how much they're going to go along with the society around them and what they're going to choose to do and not do. They don't refuse to engage full stop, but they do refuse to join in in areas where they cannot compromise. And if you notice, they pick their battles carefully. In the opening chapter, it's about not eating the unclean Babylonian food. And you probably know the story. They put across their point bravely but respectfully. And God honours their decision. And in the end, all the cohorts who are with them end up just eating uh, vegetables. I bet that made them popular, uh, didn't they, with them? But Daniel and his companions are promoted into the government. They engage, but they don't cross red lines. And then the following chapters are arranged carefully out of chronological order to sort of make points as we go through about how to live in Babylon. It's sort of a sandwich structure that works its way into the centre. In chapters 2 and 7 on the outside of the sandwich, uh, more food illustrations here, but on the outside of the sandwich are visions of four successive empires. Okay, So that's the one with the statue and it's the one with the four beasts. They're Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome. And in chapter 2, they're pictured as parts of a great statue. And in chapter 7, they're pictured as four vicious beasts. And in both cases, a new kingdom comes during the fourth and destroys all of them, destroys the last one, and thereby destroys them all. In Daniel 7, it is one like the Son of Man, a Son of Man who comes and accomplishes this. So let me read to you Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed." Do you see there, in the midst of all those changing empires that keep getting destroyed and moving on to the next one, we end up with one that will not pass away, ruled by this son of man. There's more we could say in there, but we'll, we'll leave it there to keep on moving. 
Chapters 3 and 6, next part into the sandwich, maybe the butter if you're sort of going in. Uh, chapters 3 and 6 give two accounts of God pe- God's people refusing to compromise with Babylon. In chapter 3, it's Daniel's friends who refuse to bow down to a golden statue and are thrown into a fiery furnace. In chapter 6, it's Daniel who refuses to stop praying to the Lord and is thrown into a den of lions. In both cases, God provides help in the form of an angel or maybe a pre-incarnate Jesus to help them. And they're vindicated, they're rescued. In both cases, notice, they refuse to obey. So in one case, they're told to do something that they can't do. In the other case, they're told to stop doing something that they can't stop. And in both cases, they refuse and they submit to their punishment. They actually go and, and, and make no secret of what they're doing. But God rescues them. And in both cases, the king acknowledges that God is a rescuer. That's what we see there in those chapters. And then right at the centre of the sandwich, the filling, if you like, whatever your favourite filling is, mine's coronation chicken, there you go. Uh, Right at the centre is chapters 4 and 5. Here we have two kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Both receive words from the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar in the form of a vision where he becomes a cow. Belshazzar, a hand, writing on a wall. And in both cases, Daniel is sent for to interpret the visions. For Nebuchadnezzar, the future holds a period of humbling. He will think that he is a cow. This is a real condition. It's very rare, but it does happen. For Belshazzar, he finds out his days are numbered. The writing is on the wall, quite literally. That's where we get the phrase from. And here in these chapters, we learn the central truth of the whole book, really. In Daniel 4, uh, 34 to 37, it says this. At the end of my days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honour him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counsellors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the king of heaven, for his works are right and his ways are just, and all who walk in pride, he is able to humble you notice that? He is in control and he's bringing up and bringing down people. Or as Daniel 2 puts it, Daniel 2.21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. What it's shown us there in those central chapters is whoever is in power, it's because God wills it. And knowing that actually helps us endure Babylon, doesn't it? It's not out of control. It's not just uh, up to chance. Actually, God is in control of who is, this, who is in charge. God has it all within his plan. And as if to hammer it home, we get the second half of Daniel, beyond Babylon. In chapters 8 to 12, uh, Daniel uh, sees visions that go beyond the time in Babylon and into the future. Chapter 8 is an easy one, because it's explained to him by the angel Gabriel. So we don't even need to try and work out what it means, we actually get the explanation in the chapter. 
It tells you that after the Babylonian Empire will come the Medo-Persian Empire. But that empire will be destroyed by the Greek Empire. The Greek Empire will be split into four, and uh, one that is given control of Jerusalem will be particularly nasty. That's basically what you find out. And you know what? When you look in the history books, that's right. That's what happened. If you have a Bible with an apocrypha in it, have a read of the book of Maccabees, and you can see what happened as they engaged with the Greeks. I should say with the apocrypha, it's not God-breathed scripture, but it will tell you what happened in the history of the Jews. And it really was horrific for them, because the Greeks came in and they wanted everybody to conform to Greek ways, the Greek culture, the Greek language. In Jesus' day, that's why many people spoke Greek, because the Greeks had been there and taught people Greek. The ruler who took them over set up a statue of Zeus in the temple, okay? And he sacrificed pigs on the altar in the temple. He wanted to absolutely desecrate it so that they have no reason to go back to Judaism and would come instead to Greek culture and become Greeks, like the rest of the Greek empire were trying to get everybody to do. And they had to ask the question, how do we live under the Greeks without becoming Greek? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because this is not some vision that's detached from everything else that's going on. It's the same questions. It belongs to the book of Daniel. It has the same themes of the book of Daniel. How do you live when you're ruled by the Greeks without becoming a Greek? Uh, Daniel 9, uh, uh, read, uh, sorry, in chapter, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel reads Jeremiah's prophecy about the exile lasting 70 years. And he works out we're nearly at the end of it. And he sets himself to pray for an end to the exile after that time. It's a wonderful example, we haven't got time to look into it, of of hearing God's promises and then praying in line with God's promises. But in answer to his prayer about the 70 years, the angel Gabriel explains to him a prophecy about 70 weeks. And again, it's the vision. There's little dispute as far as I can see about the first 69 weeks that he talks about. That takes us up to the end of the exile, first of all, and then on to the time of Christ. If you take one year for a day, that roughly takes you up to that time. It's the final week that causes all the controversy. Some hold that there's an unforeseen gap between week 69 and week 70, and then week 70 begins in the future, even for us. Some hold that there's an unforeseen change in the length of the week, so that the last week is longer. So we'd live in a sort of longer extended seventh week. The problem is, neither are explicitly taught, and it depends on your view of end times as to which one you go to. But the big point, whichever way you take it, um, is that actually, just like the days of the exile are in God's hands, numbered, exact, according to his calendar, so the days for his people and the whole world are in his hand, and according to his calendar. However you think the calendar works, the world is moving in accordance with how God wants it to. It's not, again, out of control. God is the one who is setting the times and the dates and the seasons. So we too should be hearing, uh, uh, um, in light of this, that the end is coming. But it's in God's control. And just as Daniel prayed, so we should pray in light of that. In chapter 10, Daniel has a vision of a man that sounds very similar to the vision that John has of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Daniel is so deeply affected by it, he goes into a state of mourning for three weeks. In the end, Daniel falls on his face into a deep sleep. 
but he's helped up by someone who tells him that he's deeply loved and that his words have been heard by God. He's told that he was delayed by the Prince of Persia. And again, there's all sorts of different opinions. He was either helping the Prince of Persia or was hindering the Prince of Persia, depending on your view. But again, we're told that after the Prince of Persia will come the Prince of Greece. And again, this idea of succession of kings and kingdoms directed by God is at the fore. In chapters 11 and 12, they repeat in many ways what we've seen in the previous chapter uh, and chapters. After Persia comes Greece. A powerful ruler will conquer them, almost certainly referring to Alexander the Great. His kingdom will be split into four and given to people who are not his children, which is actually what happened in history. Four generals were given control over Alexander's empire. And these kingdoms fought amongst themselves. There were two smaller kingdoms near Greece, and then there was uh, an empire, I'll, I'll see if I can pronounce this, this someone can correct me afterwards, um, Seleucid, Seleucid, the, Seleucid, <laughs> the Seleucian Empire was to the north and to the east of Israel, modern-day Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and Iran. And then another one, um, the uh, Ptolemaic Empire, to the south and west of Israel, modern-day Egypt, Sudan, and Libya. And because Daniel couldn't pronounce them either, he calls them the kings of the north and the kings of the south. Um, I'm sure that's why he did it. And chapter 11 prophesies with incredible accuracy the power struggle between these two, with the land of Israel caught in between, because one was to the north, one was to the south, and they were caught in the middle. With all these prophecies uh, that are so exact in this chapter, many date the book of Daniel very late. But that's partly because they can't believe that someone could ever write these things in advance. Actually, it's more the idea, they don't like the idea of prophecy full stop. But here it's a powerful reminder that God has the whole of history in his hand. He wrote it in advance for Daniel. And no doubt Daniel's readers, even under buying Greek empires, took great comfort from knowing that all was within God's full knowledge and control. Chapter 12 carries this on and predicts a great time of trouble. Perhaps as we read through this, we're thinking, what's that about? Well, it follows on from chapter 11. It predicts a great time of trouble, a great rescue, and a resurrection from the dead. But Daniel, did you notice, is told to seal up this vision as it's way off in the future. And an allotted amount of time is given till it's all complete. The burnt offering should be taken away, and then it will be 1,290 days into the future. Which you might recognise from the book of Revelation, because it's three and a half years, time, times, and half the time, or 42 months. It's a period we keep seeing repeated all the way through the book of Revelation. And again, what it's trying to show us, whatever you think about those times, is that the world may seem dangerously out of control. It seemed dangerously out of control in Daniel's day. They had a wicked empire ruling most of the known world. And of course they're asking, how are we going to survive this? How can we possibly live in this world when it's getting so crazy, when it looks so bad? But here is a reminder that God has got it all in hand. He's got it sorted to the last detail. The point of the second half of the book really is the same as the first half. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And actually the whole book would not work if that were not so. Because he couldn't say what was going to happen. He couldn't say what, would, uh, what he would do. 
And what he's showing us is that Babylon may seem proud and impervious now, whatever Babylon might be. But its days are numbered. And the empire that takes it over, its days are numbered. And the empire, in fact all empires, are numbered. But, God's kingdom will stand forever. If we live for his kingdom, we're living for something that will last. And that should encourage us. As we've been seeing in Revelation, we live in our own Babylon, with its own succession of kings and empires. But their days are numbered, and their progress is kept in check by God. Even on the darkest days of the past 2,000 years, God was still reigning. God was still working his purposes out. And the same is true this very day. We see some horrific things on the news, don't we? Christians killed, wars raging, society acting like it's lost all sense of rationality. But you know what? God is in control. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets them up. God is active in our world. He's not gone AWOL in our world. He's active. God is still working out his purposes today. And what we need to do is live in Babylon without becoming Babylonians. Remembering all the while that this is only our temporary home. Just like Babylon was for God's people. You see, life itself is a game of two halves. This one here and now, and the one to come. This life in Babylon is only the first half. It might be tough, it might be tricky, but it's only the first half. And it will turn out to be way shorter in terms of a half. But we endure now, and we look to that everlasting kingdom, with our everlasting king, with a kingdom that shall never pass away. And that, brothers and sisters, should encourage us. So let's pray that God would keep us encouraged in the world we live. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are the one who is in control. You are the one who sets up kings and removes them. Father, as we look around our world, Father, we can see lots of difficult situations, lots of kings we wish weren't there. Father, we pray that you would remove them. Father, pray that you would humble the proud and exalt the humble. And Father, we pray that you would help us to remember in all of this that this is not out of control, that you're here with us and helping us to live in this world. So Father, give us the strength and the patience we need. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.